Where we were last week, we're continuing on, and the theme is meant to be dovetailed. We were knitting ourselves to a theme with regard to the cradle that God rocks. We looked at a word that, in fact, is both a noun in the sense of a thing, the rock, and it's also a person, the Lord. Jesus was identified as the rock of salvation. He was the rock of Israel. He's the rock upon which the psalmist would say, I stand, lifting himself out of the miry clay and setting his feet upon the rock. We understand the imagery. We understand that in the terms of even the use of cradle last week, it is a geotopical term. We understand that in socioeconomics, the movement of people, that it has been coined as to where did it all begin? Well, the Bible tells us where it all began. And sociology agrees that the evidence is indeed inarguable. People have dispersed upon the face of the earth and they've done so in coordinated ways, and they've done so also in scatterings that were imposed upon them through cataclysmic events, wars and famines, the things in which there was indeed divine displacement, which Genesis records very accurately. But in it all, what it represents is humanity. And yet one of the things that we have to be reminded of is that humanity, apart from true spirituality, is lost and aimless. In what we looked at last week, that cradle that ultimately was indeed pointing to civilization in the bedrock, if you would, of the Mesopotamian area where the garden inarguably was and ultimately I believe is found where Israel certainly territorially has been given by God such that this movement as a result of the consequence of sin is God taking advance on what would be additional fallouts or consequences of the sinner. In Genesis chapter 1, it was important to take note of what appears to be an abrupt stopping point of what God had done in origin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the surface of the water. So to let you be reminded, it speaks of a cataclysm that happened. Chaos and God putting together once again what had been his vision. And so when we look at this, it is a place suggesting that God did not give up, even when the devastation of sin had been invited in by deception and disobedience from Adam and Eve. God was moving to nurse, if you would, this 
situation in which the babyhood of humanity was on a course in which its maturity would be truly sad. And without the remedy, which we call redemption, it would offer no hope. Everything that God had intended would have been upended, a cradle that should have been rocked, toppled, and God comes up with another plan. And so when we come back into this, essentially where we left off is that creation had been assaulted. Important to know that that's what verse 1 before verse 2 suggests. Innocence as well, when we looked at chapter 3, as well as perfection had been corrupted. And we go back to identify those two words, deception and disobedience. Those particular faults of humanity still are responsible for many consequential situations in our lives. We also see that as a result of that, the word of the Lord came to pass ultimately in a death sentence. It was instituted. They were told that that would be the consequence should they choose to not obey the voice of the Lord. And so what we're going to look at right now is this work of God in which in sovereignty, that means he is the supreme and chief power of all, over all and through all, inarguably. Whatever a man's opinion is, it does not displace God in his position. God in one of, I think, the shortest terms to identify sovereignty is that which he acts on his own behalf, regardless of men's behavior. He's always going to act on his behalf, regardless of men's behavior, and he's going to be acting purposefully in love and for ultimately to do good, regardless of how bad men have been. That's a positive. As a result, I think poetically we can see that this corridor, this area which God has constrained men on how far he will let them go, is a corridor of redemption. Do you know God has constrained us? We sometimes think, no, I'm my own man. I call the shots. Well, just go a little bit further to the left and see what happens how it ultimately does, from God's perspective, have limitations. And we find that out. God also says, don't go too far to the right. Stay centered. And so humanity right now, with regard to the story of Jesus, the plan that God had to ultimately insert himself physically divinely, what we would say mysteriously, but inarguably, into life comes to fruition with the birth of Jesus. Here's what happens, though. As we looked in the beginning at what would be called the origins of man, 
and the design of God for there to be a beautiful, unhindered, perfect fellowship until that, if you would, fateful decision that caused a break in the fellowship with God, we see that he was still at work. The chapters convey this in what we would say, conscience. Innocence right now and perfection had been violated and God moves man on this humanity's march and prayerfully to a solution of this dilemma of being sinners and knowing it, continually finding a confrontation in consequence, and God's not dismissing himself from the scene. Chapter, which I want to take you to right now, is going to be six. We're just going to march ahead there very quickly. Tells us what happens when, from chapter four, which was the recorded first murder of the Bible, that was Cain taking his brother Abel's life, and the generations that would follow, parented, of course, by Adam and Eve. That's what you need to not only assume but believe. They were still in charge of the generations to come. But here's what we see that's sorrowful, and for you also to take note, that moving away from the age of innocence, God permits himself to give man an opportunity with their conscience. Here's the summary of it. Take your eyes and look at verse 5, and this is what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is God's assessment of humanity on this march. This anticipation that God has of both desiring to do good and to do good even in advance of men who are only desiring to do wrong. God is saying something here. His heart has broken over this. To the degree, he says, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. Advancing to verse 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. The effect of sin defiled everything. It did not take long for even the innocence of a baby, even nurtured to the best of a mother and father's ability to ultimately play out, even for the sake of conscience, to what would, we would conclude right now was demise. Conscience requires morals. 
But morals cannot stand on their own merit. It has to be anchored in something larger, something sure and steadfast. Morals can only go as far as an individual will choose to be moral or what we would identify spiritually as righteous. The ability to make decisions that render for an authority over them a pleasing outcome. When I agree with God on everything that he says concerning his word, choosing to follow that word, choosing to obey God, choosing not to be deceived by culture, by the world system, then I'm moving in harmony with God. When in any part of that, I decide to, if you would, make my own rules, choose my own way, disregard what God has spoken, I am on my way with my conscience to do exactly what the word says humanity at this point had done. He says that he's going to destroy everything. Sorry that he ever made them. And verse 8, really important when we're looking at still the effort that God makes to save man from himself. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One man and his family seen from heaven's perspective with God's eyes that would have a heart to not only follow him, but to be obedient and even the hardship of what that request would mean. Going against culture, being laughed and mocked at in days that were evil and sinister. This is what one man that God's eyes fell upon would choose to do. Was he a perfect man? No. But what you're needing to see is this time in this world event was a redemptive plan because God was going to wash the planet clean. He was going to give one opportunity for repentance to all who would choose. And there was one man that would have that evangelistic message. And there would be one vessel in which any who would respond would be welcomed in. And it seems that only the animals cared to take that opportunity. You know the story. But when the door of that ark was closed and the floodwaters from the canopy above the earth caved in and the fissures released waters from beneath, it was a global flood in which all life perished except that which was held in the ark. The ark is important. We would call it the ship of salvation. And there's no way that that ark could have even managed that kind of tumult of water, the stirring. You think you've been in storms? That would make anything you thought you've been in pale. That was not a gentle lake. It was a violent tossing. But the ark was intended to show what God would do to protect the lineage of faith it was still coming up on the horizon. So you have the age of innocence that had passed. You have the consequence 
of death related to sin. And what is God going to do? He makes a decision ultimately to speak to the heart of one man. And there's going to be an outcome that for us still will require another remedy by God. In chapter 6, where we've been, it's important to mark again what God ultimately is saying. I love you guys enough to not let you go, but I love you guys enough to put a stop from you continuing on in sin. And that's what he did. All you have to do is change. All you have to do is repent. And God says you're invited in to the ship of salvation. So I want to continue on here with this. Where conscience has been employed and conscience has not been successful, what does God desire to do then? Well, in Genesis 8, the ship ultimately lands, the water recedes, Noah's given an opportunity to start it all over. Remember, the gene pool still is infected, but a man who's exercising in faith is effectual. He's still able to inspire the next lineage of humanity to move through that corridor of redemption. That's what he's there for. And one of the things that we see God employing through a word that he speaks to Noah is the implementation of government. He's going to give society an opportunity to have their social needs met by rules and regulations. It's different because it's intended to be a social order. That's essentially what we see. And God gives a command that we know is very simple it was for Noah and his family to be fruitful and to multiply and to spread over the face of the earth. And as you can read in chapter 8, I think you already know where this is going, in the deliverance which chapter 8 tells us happened, we can see that in chapter 11 that disbursement of humanity stopped. It got clogged like a bad drain. If you look at chapter 11, you're familiar with what humanity decided to do. Disobey God, be deceived by what they thought they could accomplish on their own. And they formed a government. It was called Babel. There was a tower that was built in the building of this tower, it was basically a worship center. It was not worship that was designed by God in which a sacrificial system would be employed to cover, if you would, their sin. It was actually a new age, mystical means of a spirituality detached from God and to make of the stars and of the heavens everything about it and nothing about God. It was truly a work of Satan at that time, and God once again had to intervene. I think you'll recall that in the intervention, 
in verse 4 of chapter 11, God looks at the predicament of man one more time. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's what culture said. That's how the Tower of Babel was built. God looked at it and said, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Verse 7, come. Let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Why? Because they couldn't communicate any longer, and not being able to communicate in mass, they had to be reduced in force. They had to only be paired up with those whom they would find understanding them. It was a means by which they would be reduced and humbled, and they would have to reconsider everything that this particular endeavor of government had led them to do. Government is sanctioned, there's no doubt about that. It's an institution that, that is to be committed to God. You move a government away from God, it becomes godless, it becomes secular, it becomes humanitarian, and it leads people from God. And it sanctions people to not care about God, rewards them for being godless. I think that kind of reflects our day presently, don't you agree? It reflects our culture today. Seems to me, if God hadn't promised that he would not flood the earth again, then it must mean that there is still a pending judgment, and there is. You see, God wants to save, if you would, in this term, this corridor of redemption, those who are still traveling down it. They're limited on how far they can go to the extreme on either side, but God is still centering himself. He's moved in advance. As we look back on this, this is only helping us define what is the love of God and the patience that he has for men and his desire to save them, ultimately by himself, through himself. We get that next picture in what we also know in chapter 12 is the covenant relationship with God through a man named Abraham that in chapter 12 identifies him as one who did not do anything to warrant the visitation of God except he was there. He must have had a heart that was tender. He must have had ears willing to hear. He must have had a disposition that was willing to sacrifice and obedience. All of these things make him a character that we look back to now and we say, ah, is that a man of faith? That just in where he's at and quite distant from actually walking with God would take the opportunity to walk with God. That's what Abraham represents. It's not that he was extraordinarily spiritual. It indicates that he was a leader 
in his community, Ur of the Chaldees. And chapter 12 tells us that in some manner God spoke to him and said, leave this place and take your family and go to a place that I will show you. That's how he enters in on the pages of history in turning the course of humanity. He will be in parallel with those who choose not to follow. He will lead a generation towards ultimately following God and being marked by God. We're the beneficiaries ultimately of the decision he made to follow God. But there's another nation that became the beneficiaries of him too. You know it is? Israel. Israel became the beneficiaries of what Abraham ultimately did. And it wasn't a result of them being a perfect people. They were considered a peculiar people, stubborn, stiff-necked, hard of hearing, disobedient, easily deceived. What? God would do that? Well, one of the things that makes Israel inspiring to us is that it shows us the faithfulness of God and the tenacity of the Lord to be true to himself, not true to Israel. He's true to himself, and therefore he is true to Israel. What about the church? That's in the lineage of the faith that we're talking about. This is ultimately what would be satisfied by God through what? His son. When you look back on what we would say is this recorded mess and these continual mess-ups, it's not thwarting God's patience. It is not changing his love. It is not affecting one thing about his disposition to save with a mighty outstretched arm. And the reason that that's good is for you and I. If he didn't give up on Israel, will he give up on anyone? Nope. Will he give up on the church? Nope. What is the church to be doing? The work that ultimately the Lord has left us to do being filled by his spirit, being a body of believers representing his heart and exercising in faith with our hands and our feet. That's what we're doing here today. Chapter 12 moves us into this dispensation. In other words, God visiting man for the purpose of redeeming him and expressing an option which will work according to his will. Innocence, that's my desire. That's what I willed. But conscience, I will work through the conscience of men that they might know me and choose right over wrong, good over evil, righteousness over wickedness. That I will consent to and inspire. This other dispensation, I will give an opportunity for men to govern themselves by having leadership over them to handle matters of civil authority. Government is good if they honor and serve a good God in the authority that they've been given. If not, they become corrupt and they only represent another facet of humanity's demise. Promise, the covenant. This is where we are now. That's God redemptively saying, 
I'm going to give an opportunity in which faith can be expressed because I'm pleased with faith. I'm pleased with faith and those who believe while exercising faith will see me in ways that the world cannot be privileged to. And so Abraham's whole life, which was a long life, is recorded with great disappointments and great challenges in terms of what he would sacrifice. In chapter 22, if you go over there, just so your eyes can lock on that, I think right now if I asked you, what does it represent? It represents Abraham coming to terms with the request of God that he take his son, his only son, and bring him to a mount, and there present him before God, put on an altar, and sacrificed to the Lord. What was the reason for that? Why is that an important historical documentation? Because God would see that in the willingness of this man of faith, what he ultimately would do to please God, even at the cost of losing his son, if this man would do it, God would substantiate that and anchor it by doing it himself. As you recall, the son was obedient to the call to take his son, Isaac, son of laughter, to follow his father up this hill that he was told to meet at. We suspect that this hill is the very one that Jesus would die on, Mount Moriah, Calvary, Golgotha, that same mountain range, very likely that very same place. And God would say, at the moment in which that dispatch of obedience would be to render the knife to his son as a sacrifice, he stops him, prohibits Abraham from bringing death to his son, and he says to Abraham, I will provide myself a sacrifice. Essentially, God is saying to Abraham, and he says to a generation of humanity, I'm going to insert myself in this predicament in which you need to be forgiven. It's going to require a sacrifice. I will do it myself. But I will leave behind the picture of what will need to be satisfied, that sin costs. It is a costly thing. Life is required. The life of the innocent for the life of the guilty. And that's the picture that we see back in Genesis chapter 22. This plan of redemption in which the cradle of humanity had been rocked, in which there was from the beginning the intent of God to deliver for himself a family of children, men and women, that would not only love him but serve him and they would be the means and messengers to the gospel. It's a cool story. It's a sure story. We call that a covenant. It's the time in which what God said, he performs. That's why promises and covenants are so important because in essence, we're expressing the same heart that God expressed in his word to Abraham. And what he said to Abraham, he guarantees to us in this lineage of faith.
That's why when you look through the word and you find yourself reacquainted with the promise that God gave you 30 years ago, 20 years ago, just last week, you can say, praise God, it's still good. I was still bad, but that word is still good. I'm still challenged with my spirituality, but God is not challenged in his love for me. Not all is good, but God is good, and he's good all the time. And on that, I'll rejoice. Like I said, and perhaps I also heard of last week, there are some brothers and sisters that had a sure word from the Lord. I hear about that every now and then. I hear at times how long I talk. Very often I'm rewarded by saying, that word was true. I heard a promise. Two weeks ago, I went up into the office to pray. And it was in the office at that time that the Lord reacquainted me with the word that he had given me 20 years ago. But it was just as if it was fresh. Why? Because perhaps the Lord saw discouragement in my heart and said, I'm going to revive you. I'm going to start your ticker again. And he did so with the scripture. And as soon as I got it, I compared it to that which I penned years ago. And I said, sweet. That was a sweet word then. It is a sweet word now. And you know what God's sweet word does? It savors in your mouth and removes the bitterness that may be on your tongue. That's what it does. We never know how bitter we are until we get a sweet savor from the Lord and we go, oh my goodness, I came that close in my discouragement. The covenant promise, chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 22 in which God ratifies it by inserting himself, I'm making provision for you. To this day, God would say, I'm making provision for you. Such an important reality because we're coming into the story of actually seeing how God did it by bringing his son, his only son, to ultimately the need of humanity to be saved from itself. What we do know is that God in his providential grace, in advance of grace, saved people by what they looked forward to God has saved us on what we look back on. And as a result of looking back on the work of God on the cross through Jesus, the son, then we have a bright future to look forward to in following him and being a part of the church. Where does this go? Here's where it goes doctrinally. Chapter 19 of Exodus, for your own rendering, introduces us to the law. The law is important because ultimately where conscience failed and even faith had its stumbling points, God moved to deliver people ultimately in understanding his perspective on how we ought to be towards him and how we ought to be towards one another. We have to have an anchor. The law is not going to save you, but it does teach us, the scriptures tell us, on what is an essential, our conduct. And when we have an understanding of conduct, when we have an understanding of innocence, 
when we have an understanding through conscience, when we have submission to proper authority and governance, when we're hedged in by all of these parameters, then we are able to be without excuse on how we could have missed God and his grace. In essence, how God has treated humanity since the fall has always been to give us revelation of his love and to show us that he's a father who cares in disciplining us through love and ultimately will not let us go, even when we deserve it, even when we've asked for it, even when there has been, if you would, a stubborn disposition that has made every allowance contrary to God's will, he will not give up on us. Beautiful story there. The law is identified in Exodus 13, 19, and you can read it. And Moses was the one who had to implement it. And what a great man to implement the law. You know, he had a temper problem. God chose somebody who couldn't even hold his temper in check, but he had to be tempered by writing the law. How do you behave towards God? How do you behave towards your brethren? With my temper, I behave. I mean, doesn't that show you that if God could use a temperamental man, then no matter how angry you may be towards someone or even God himself, he could use you? The law was imposed and still in place. Scriptures tell us as a tutor that drives us because we cannot satisfy the law. If you violate one portion of the law, you've violated all the law. You understand that when the picture and his frustration, when he received the word of the Lord on two stone tablets had begun to come down because curiously their ears were provoked, Joshua misunderstood what it was. He says that is mischief going on in the camp. And when he found out that basically Israel had turned their back on God in the 40 days that he had been up on the mount, he cleaned camp. But in the process of doing that, he took the law and in his temperamental tirades, smashed them to dust beneath his feet and made the Israelites drink as it was put into the water. He threw a tantrum being provoked because of the behavior of the nation that he was leading. And it's interesting because God would say to him, there's a line drawn, but I'm the ultimate authority in how it's expressed. I am not mad at them enough to destroy my law. You did. Anger, he broke all the laws. One outburst of anger, he broke all the law. And that's why it's important to know that no one can be saved by the law. It's good that it is universal and that we keep it as best we can. But ultimately, the one that perfected the keeping of the law and walked in perfection to the law was Jesus Christ. He's the one that the scriptures are pointing to redemptively. And thereby it brings us now into that beautiful expression of God in humanity, and it's called grace. Grace was manifested when Jesus was born, and it was ratified when he died and resurrected. It was the means by which God 
would save men. The law would not save them. The law would tutor them. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. Did okay there, but failed in all the others. Because we can't perfectly keep the law. But Jesus said that not one jot or tittle would be removed from the law. And even those that the Jewish people ultimately penned by the aristocracy, the Pharisees and Sadducees that misled the people and put a burden on them too large to keep. When Jesus came and liberated them in love, it was not only life-changing, it was life-saving. And so as we looked back in the beginning, citing scripture that you can find the evidence of God moving in sovereignty in advance of even all of the problems that men created in their pursuits of satisfying themselves through any other means but God, God proved himself. And the age that we're in from the day that Jesus went to be in heaven is grace. And in it, all of the things that humanity ultimately was given an opportunity to see if you could do better, we enjoy because we've come to the best option. The Lord, who in his righteousness envelops us, we are not seen as ourselves, we are seen as God views his Son, perfect in him. He is worthy to be praised. When you see at times of communion or times in teachings or devotions in which the quivering lip and the failing voice and the sweated brow become evident, men trembling, women trembling, what's happening? It's the Spirit of God. At times even when I speak, I choke. I try to discipline myself in how that will come out, but sometimes I can't. You're seeing the evidence of men, women, under grace. And ultimately, in that vulnerability, expressing the love of God. Because we look back and we see he did it. He met us at our point of desperate need. He satisfied all of our desires. And before us is heaven. Before us are joy and peace and love and perfection and innocence and freedom from sin and the persuasion of sin. And ultimately, like the earth had been remade, God is remaking us right now and preparing us for heaven. That's the prelude to appreciating the coming of the Lord. In these next two weeks, we'll review the familiar. Hopefully this review was something that inspires you to see we didn't tire God out. We got tired of doing our own thing, but we never got him tired of us. All we can see here is beautiful, wonderful efforts and options for us to see him better. In the misery and failure of humanity, God says victory in Jesus. 
victory in Jesus and wholesomeness in the family of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.